third week as a church where we're praying for another church in Warsaw. And, and just if, you're, if this is new, if you, if you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, the, the reason that we're doing this is that there's been this stirring in, in, our, in Joe and my hearts um, just about unity. And so unity within branches and, and as, as, as we come together and worship and as we serve God and as we seek to see his kingdom come here in branches and in Warsaw, we just, we really, you know, God's been stirring this thing about that we need to be united as one. We really need to, to, to be a team, if, if you will. And, and then there was some conversations that were taking place about Warsaw and the churches in Warsaw. And there's actually been um, a couple people who have really sought to see the pastors of Warsaw be in, in close, intimate relationship with one another, and then the churches to be united as, as one. And it's this idea of, you know, a lot of times in churches, you get this feeling that it's, it's us and them. You know, we are our church, and then that's their church. But the truth is, is we're all God's family. And, and we like to say that we're just a different flavor than the church down the street. We taste different. We smell different, for sure. And, um, and so it's, I really sense that it's, it's something God's really calling me. Just really, I feel impressed that it's part of my responsibility to be in relationship with the pastors in Warsaw. And then in hopes that through the relationships that I build with the pastors in Warsaw, that our churches can enter into relationship where we're worshiping God together. And then we believe that out of that, what will take place is that the city of Warsaw will start to see a unity. And because of that, it'll become attractive to people. And and people will want to know about this Jesus. Why are churches united? Why are people united in such a way? So as a result, we, we made a commitment that over the next several weeks, we're going to pray for a different church in Warsaw as they're having their service right now. And so this week we're play, praying for Christ Covenant Church and the pastor is, is Nate McLaurin and his wife is Robin. And that looks like the Peyton family photo right there with all them kids. Um, but, uh, but we're going to pray for them. Uh, Nate's a great guy. Nate has an incredible testimony of, of freedom from addiction, freedom from some legal stuff, and, uh, and God did a big work in his heart, and as he, he committed to serve God for the rest of his life, and he's a pastor today. And, and I text Nate and said, hey, we're praying for you guys. What is it we can pray for? And, and he, he said the same thing back to me. He said, pray that, the, the, that Christ Covenant Church will be united with the other churches, that we as one can worship God, and that Warsaw would see that, and people will come. So he, he just said the same thing. So so let's, let's, if you'll just pray with me, and then would you commit during the week to be praying for, for the leadership of Christ Covenant Church, for Nate and his family as they, as they lead, and um, the other pastors and staff, and the, and the people who attend Christ Covenant. Would you be committed to praying for them over the next week, and just praying that God will be doing a great work in their, in their flavor of their church, okay? So, so Father, we lift up Christ Covenant Church right now. Lord, we lift them up as, as they're, they're in worship. And God, would, would you pour out your spirit on that church as we pray right now? Would, would, would you reveal yourself to everyone sitting in, in, in their building that you are God, that you are king? Lord, we lift up Nate and his family and, the, and his leadership that he would be continually casting vision that, that, that the, the, what you've called Christ Covenant Church to be in Warsaw would be on the forefront of their mind and they'd be focusing on that in, in ways to bring uh, people to you and to serve you and love you with all their hearts. 
God, would you um, answer their prayers, that same prayer we have to bring unity within the churches here in Warsaw for, for the purpose of, of, of you being revealed to, to the people that live here in this city. God, we want to lift and honor you in this. We want you to be glorified in everything we do. So, Lord, just be with that church right now. Be with the leadership. And, God, would you, would you bless them as they serve you? In Jesus' name, amen. Another group of people that worship God is our Amish people. Has anybody ever been Amish in here? Is anybody one family member removed from being Amish in here? Yeah. This one's for you, okay? So Amelia's, your parents were Amish, correct? Amelia's dad was Amish. The Amish people in the Amish community, they have this time where a teenager enters a time called Rumspringer. Anybody ever heard of that Rumspringer? If you guys have been around, they're crazy people, these Amish. When I was going to move to Indiana and I said, I'm moving where the Amish people are, I have a friend of mine goes, oh, those Amish are some crazy people. So they have this time of Rumspringer. And what it is, as I did some research, is that it's a time where some strings are loosened for a youth and, and they're, they're actually allowed to expand their social boundaries if you will. And, and, and part of that is that they enter into to their time where they're able to meet other, other Amish kids and go to these Amish sings and Amish dances and, and almost Amish youth group. And, and part of that is maybe that they'll meet their spouse in this time. Now, there's a popularized view of Rumspringer, and that's that, that Amish kids leave their house and their parents say, you're free to do whatever you want. And they enter into wild partying. They get cars and drive. They dress like the, like the English. That's what we're called, the English. So they dress like us. And they, they abandon their Amish roots and go sow their wild oats, if you will. This is kind of a popularized view. And we've seen this if you've watched any, um, there's, there's documentaries about it. You know, we, we even see it in Ink Free. I've seen this summer like eight people, eight underage, you know, teenagers were arrested for drinking on the sandbar at, um, at Wawasee Lake. And I started looking at the names, and it was Yoder and Miller and Mishler, and they were all from, you know, Napanee and, and, you know, all the areas. And I'm like, it was a bunch of Amish kids got arrested for partying on the sandbar this summer in, in, in Wawasee Lake. And so we have this idea that they're out sowing their wild oats. And the premise behind this is that they will go out and experience all that the world has to offer, and then they'll come back, and they will have tasted the world, but because of their upbringing, because of how they've been raised— that they'll realize that the things that the world has to offer to them doesn't taste anything near as sweet and as satisfying to them as joining the Amish church. Is that, is that fair? Does that sound about fair? I'm, I'm, I'm consulting my resident Amish, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so, so this is the idea that, that go out and taste the world because I'm not afraid of what you're going to taste out there, is you know, maybe what a parent might say, because in the end, you're going to come back and you're going to recognize that the Amish lifestyle, God, church, is what really is going to bring satisfaction to your life for the rest of your life. So as a result, go out and do that. And when you come back, we'll dismiss all that. You join the Amish church and get going with your life and your new spouse. And so, so that's kind of a, the thought process behind this popularized view of, of Rumspringer. Now, now, for us, let's just translate that to us. What that might say to us as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, is that you lived in the world, and you tasted what the world had to offer. And you, and you were able to experience the things of the world, good, bad, and ugly. 
And at some point in your life, you met Jesus. And everything was wonderful. And, and your experience you had with God was so powerful and so fulfilling and so satisfying that now that you're a Christian, everything of the world is dismissed and you're running 100%, 100 miles an hour in the direction towards Jesus as your, as your Lord and Savior. And, and that's kind of some of the ideas that we bring. But we all know that that doesn't always happen, does it? We all know that, that we, we taste Jesus and, man, it, it's different. There's some freedom I have with Jesus. There's, there's some peace I have that Jesus brought that the world didn't have to give me. There's some, there's some comfort. There's some knowledge of knowing that if I died right now, I'm going to spend eternity with God. And we, we even maybe go through this honeymoon-like phase of walking with God that, man, life is wonderful. And then somewhere along the line, we start slipping back. And the things that we participated in, the things that we thought were satisfying before, start, we start going back to those to bring satisfaction to our lives because all of a sudden, for some reason, we're not, we're not seeing God as the full satisfaction in our life. And, and, then, and then we start to just look like the rest of the world. Our weeks start to look like, oh yeah, this week I, I did what everybody else does, but the only difference was that I, if I died right now, I'd, I'd maybe go to heaven. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We know that, the, that we were created to have this intimate relationship, this fellowship with God. My wife, Jo, who's sitting right here, she, we've, we've talked about this over the course of our marriage, that she'll say something like, the best sinners in the world become the best Christians. And, and what, she, what she's saying is that, you know, somebody who has lived life to the fullest in the world, when they really meet and experience Jesus... They really live life, life to the fullest with Jesus. And, and, and sometimes we, we wonder if a kid who's raised in the church, taught all the Sunday school stories, and you know, knows all the lingo and stuff of Christianity, and knows what to do when they walk in the room, it, they become numb to the fact that there's an experience that takes place with God. And so it's harder for them to maintain a passionate and intimate and fulfilling walk with Jesus than a person who has lived 100% in the world and now comes and lives 100% for Jesus. And, and she says this because this was her life. So here's my wife's testimony. She was raised in a home, mom and dad, and they would go to church and this and that. And then when she was about 12, her parents divorced. And, and life changed drastically for her, economically, socially. Everything changed for her and her brother. And so as a result, they got into the wrong crowd. Has anybody ever been caught into the wrong crowd? I have. I'm trying to still get rid of them, but they're still hanging on to me. My kids, man. <laughs> so, so, so what happened with Joe and her brother is that they got into the drugs and the party. And, and their life was, you know, she tells me stories of her as a teenager selling drugs to the housewives in the mountains of California. So women at home with their kids, and she would go be the one delivering the drugs to them. And, you know, her and her brother chasing the next high, chasing the next high, chasing the next high. And, and you know, nothing was fulfilling now, so let's move on to the, the next thing that's going to bring the fulfilling in my life. This was my wife as a teenager. And then, you know, when she was 16 or 17, she met Jesus. And, and because she had tasted so much of the world, she said, I don't want that world anymore. I want Jesus. And she's, she's ran full after God. And, and, and honestly, that's what attracted me to her. The day I saw her, she was worshiping God. I was sitting in the back, scanning the room for girls because I was new to the church. So I was fresh meat and I was checking out who was there. And I see this blonde hair. She's blonde. 
you know, um, regardless of what color Krista put in there. Um, I see this blonde-haired girl worshiping Jesus, and, I, and it was very attractive to me, like, wow. And I, I, even, I even said, I said, there's a girl I could marry. <laughs> I won. <laughs> she what? She caught me. There you go. So, so here's the point. When we fully expect God or experience God, it should lead, lead us to living a life that's completely engaged with Christ. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the question I want you to, or the, the, the statement I want you to, to finish. I want you to say this. For me, to live is, and fill in the blank. For me, to live is, and what would your, your answer be? Now, if you've been in church long enough, or if you've read Philippians, which is where we're at, Philippians 1, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you've read Philippians you, you, you might have automatically just popped in to, for me to live as Christ because that's the verse that we know. But, but really think about that. What's, what honestly is, is what you live for? What do you get out of bed every morning excited and anticipating for your day to be? You know, so, so if you're, well, there's people right now that are getting out of bed eagerly anticipating NFL. And this time of the year, they live for football. They, they will glue themselves to the TV multiple screens, they're watching every game, they're taking stats because of their um, fantasy football league, and they're living for football. If you're a football player, you, a football player, professional might say, well, for me to live is football. For a mu- musician, for me to live is, is music. What is it for you? What is it for you to live? Here's, here's what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, and this is Paul writing, he says, for me, or for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that's a reference of the scripture I was, I was referring to. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And here's what we're going to see today. That this is Paul's mission statement for his life. This is the banner that he's looking at every day when he wakes up in the morning. This is what he, he is focused on. And, and here's what he's saying when he says that. He says, Christ transformed my life. So now today, Christ is my life. And when I die, Christ will transcend my life. Now, remember, Paul's writing in Philippians. He's sitting in a, in a, in a dungeon, in a, in a pit, in jail. He's facing potential death. Life is not good for Paul. And he's saying, well, that's okay. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying this. He's saying, life is great. Regardless of what's happening around me, regardless of my condition or the outcome. And in the end, if I die, it's even going to be better. It's even going to be better. So we're going to look at just a few verses Verses twenty through twenty-three, and we're gonna um, we're gonna just ask this question and, and be challenged in this way. This is kind of the big idea for this morning. That could we wake up every morning and to ourselves say, "Today, for me to live is Christ." Can 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 we come to the place in our life to do that? Because because I'm gonna say in a few minutes that I don't think we're there yet. So let's read these these verses in Philippians. Here's what Paul writes. He says, "I eagerly expect and hope." that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, de- to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So, so if, if, if you... If you know, I'm reading out of the New International Version today just because I like this, the way it's written. Usually we're in, we're in a different translation. But this is what Paul, the statement Paul made. And I want you to look at the very first part of, of verse 20. He says this, For I eagerly expect and hope. 
This is what Paul wakes up in the morning. He has this eager expectation and hope. It's, it's, it's what, what he's focused on. Now, here, here's how this translates to us. Josh, wake up because I'm about to talk about you, okay? He's taking notes. I knew you weren't sleeping, man. Just teasing you. I'm just giving you the warning. You, I'm about to talk about you. Because Josh is about to wake up and eagerly expect and hope for something in about two weeks. And so am I, and so is a lot of people, because October 1st is hunting season. And so here's what this looks like, okay? We will wake up in the morning on a Saturday, bright and early, and we will not be sleepy at all. We will have this expectation. First, we'll have this hope that we're going to see a deer. And then we're going to have this expectation that everything we've prepped for, Ryan, you're with me on this, right? Yeah, even Tracy. Tracy, okay. So you got it. You can't wake up on on October 1st because it's a Sunday, but you could do it October 2nd. But we're going to eagerly expect and hope that we're going to see a deer and that we're going to, we're going to heart, we'll use the word harvest a deer for those that don't like the word kill. We're going to harvest a deer, okay? This is an expectation that we have. This is something that we are now dreaming about. This is something that's getting us excited. Yesterday, I went out and I climbed the tree and I checked my stand and I made sure everything was safe and I checked to see if there was any overgrown um, tr- you know, limbs that I needed to cut so I have a clear shot. And I'm now, this expectation and this hope is building inside of a lot of us in the room right now because we want to see something take place at the end and that's the meat in the refrigerator or in the freezer. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I eagerly expect and hope. He wakes up and there's two things that he eagerly and expecting and is hoping for. And verse 20 says this at the end. It says, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So here's the first, the first thing that Paul is eagerly expecting and hoping is that he would not be ashamed. He would not be ashamed to stand and say, Christ is my all in all. I am a Christian. I am saved. Christ intervened in my life. I'm a new person. This is what Paul is saying. And this can be a bit convicting for me. Because maybe like you, sometimes we've had shame when we've had to claim that we're Christians. For me, here's the situation. I'm in a room of people I don't know. All of a sudden, somebody makes a comment about Jesus. And maybe it's not a very good comment. And all of a sudden, I say, boy, do I want to, like, out myself? Do I want to reveal that I actually belong to that guy? Excuse me. <clears throat> and so I get nervous. Or maybe, maybe in the situation, there already it's pretty obvious these people don't, don't want anything to do with God. And so the conversation starts coming up. And I start to be ashamed like, oh, I don't want to be weird in front of these people. And so what do I do? I get quiet. I don't say anything. Or I divert the questions in, in, to a different topic just so I don't have to reveal that Christ is in my life. So, so, so there's times in my life where I'm ashamed. And Paul's saying, there's never a time in my life that I'm ashamed. I, I, I am hoping and I expect that Christ will always be my all in all. He's saying, may it never be that Christ is in me. The second that, that Paul says that he's, he's eagerly hoping and expecting is that, is that his life would bring honor to Jesus. He's laser focused I'm being bold for Christ and to bring honor of lifting Christ up in his life. And that should be the same expectation we have. There should be this, this level that in everything we do, 
Christ is being elevated in our life. So, so it would look like this. In the relationships we have, how we talk and deal with people, Christ is being elevated in our, in our lives. People see Jesus in us by how we communicate with other people. When the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, because it does, right? And, and all of a sudden, chaos seems to be stemming up and jumping all over the place. How we react to that should reveal Christ in our life. And Christ should be honored in our life by how we, how we, what we post on Facebook. By, by how we love those that are helping to cause the chaos. We should be bringing honor to Christ by how we, how, how we react to the crap of this world. How about when we come across a person that just needs love? And, and they maybe are unlovable people. Maybe they're somebody that just drives you nuts. But you love that person because you know that Christ loves you. And you want to love them just as Christ loves you. And you bring honor to Christ because, because of your relationship you have with him. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, I, in everything I do, I want Christ to be lifted up in my life. Paul's able to wake up every morning with an expectation not to be ashamed and to bring honor with Christ. And then the question is, well, how, how is he able to do that? And that takes us back to verse 21 where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, I'm able to do that because the banner that's hanging in front of my life, my mission statement for my life is that Christ is everything. And because he's everything, I know that I can, I, I know the reason I wake up is to bring honor and glory to him and not be ashamed of what is my everything. Look at what Paul says about who he was prior to Christ. He says this, he says in Philippians 3, he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew if there ever was one. I don't know if this is correct, but I, I get the feeling he's saying, I was a man's man. Is this, I don't know if, the, you know, I kind of get the feeling he's saying, I, w- I, w- I was part of the team. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so z- zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as far as righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And then he finishes and says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done to me. So here's how I see this. Paul is laying out his pedigree. Paul's saying, I, I, I had everything a Jewish man could have in my day. I, I, it was all laid out for me. He, sa- he, says, he says, I was born to the right people. I was educated. I had social stati- status. I had great zeal. I had passion in my life. I had everything, but it didn't bring the fulfillment that, and the satisfaction in my life that meeting Christ and living for Christ has brought. Can we say the same thing? Can you honestly say, and, and let me just tell you this, there maybe are two people in this, in this church, in this, this entire building that could say this. So I'm going to tell you that you can't say this or you're not saying this. And let me just be very clear. I'm not one of the two people I'm thinking about, okay? And my wife isn't the other. So we, we have work to do, okay? But here, here's, here's, what, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that, Nothing that the world, that I can go turn and grab from the world, will bring the satisfaction in my life. And, and we struggle with this because we think that if I really bust my butt today, I'm going to be able to control and bring satisfaction in my life for tomorrow when my paycheck comes. Or we say, I'm really not feeling fulfilled in my life, so that bright, new, shiny, good-smelling 
whatever is going to bring the fulfillment and the happiness in my life that, that I really feel like I need. So we go out and do that, and what happens? Either buyer's remorse hits immediately, or that thing stops smelling so new and fresh and shiny, and it becomes just stale. And then we lose the satisfaction of that. Or we say this, that person, that significant person in my life is finally going to fill that void in my heart that I've, been, that I've, I've had. And so I'm going to give everything to that one person, and they're going to be my satisfaction. They're going to be my fulfillment. And so that's what I'm going to pour my attention into. And then we find that that doesn't do it also. We only will find fulfillment and satisfaction in our life when Christ is our all in all. Here's what John Piper wrote. He wrote, Christ is most magnified in us. So if we want to bring glory to God, he's most magnified in us when we are most satisfied in him or in Christ. Do you see where that's going? So, so, so the challenge is, can we wake up tomorrow morning and can you say today for me to live today is going to be Christ? It's going to be Christ. And, and I'm going to expect that I'm not going to bring, be ashamed of that Christ is living in me. I'm going to hope that I'm, my life is going to bring glory to him. Can you say that? Can we commit to saying that? Can you try it? Can we say tomorrow I'll try it and then I'll reevaluate and maybe the next day I'll try it? Now, Paul takes it one step further. He's not done because he says to me to live as Christ, but then he says to die as gain. Now, here's what I, I don't believe Paul had a death wish. I don't believe Paul was like, just kill me. Let's get it over with. I think what Paul's saying is that you can't test me or tempt me or, or challenge me with death. He's faith, facing death. And he's saying, you can't, you can't, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't threaten me with death. Because I know that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be in the presence of God. My eternity starts and all the mess that I I've, have I've on this earth is gone. And some of us, we, we can't say that, can we? Because we're afraid of death. We're scared. I'm scared to die. When I die, I want it to be fast. Like, lop my head off and it's over. Like, I think about, how many of you ever thought about the worst way you think you could die? Mine is, is drowning or suffocation. Like, don't hold me underwater and don't, don't choke me out. Because I've, I've had both done to me at some point in my life and I don't like it. <laughs> I'm having this thought of when the dude choked me out. <laughs> it didn't feel good. I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die because I don't want to go through some pain. Or maybe I'm afraid to die because I think if I was to die today, I'm leaving a wife and three kids behind. What what are they going to do without me? Probably a lot better because I have a good life insurance policy for them. (laughs) Dave was saying it this morning. He's better. He's he's more worth more dead than alive right now. So. Maybe you're afraid to die because you're, you're not certain to what's on the other side. Maybe you're not, you're not convinced that, that there's salvation, that there's eternity with Christ. And so we're scared to die. But this isn't the case with Paul. Paul's saying, life is going to get really good for me on the other side. Why? Because he's focused on eternity. He's not focused on what's happening on this earth. I'm lost now. 
Here's what one preacher, one preacher said when he asked this question. He says, how can, it, how can death be a gain? If Paul says to, to die is gain, how can death be a gain? And then he answers the question. Here's what he says. He says, first, when we die, we lose everything we do not need. So he says, we lose the world. We lose the flesh. We lose the devil. We lose our trials and our troubles. We lose our tears, our fears, and our weaknesses. That'd be a pretty good thing to lose when we die, right? Here's what we get to keep when we die. We keep everything that matters. We keep our personality, our identity, and our knowledge of all that is good. And then here's what we gain when we die. We gain what we never had before. We gain heaven. We gave the saints. We gave the angels. We gain the presence of God, and we gain Jesus himself. And this is why Paul can stand, sit there in a jail cell and say, hey, if I'm going to keep on living, it's going to be fruitful labor. Labor. People are going to know about what Jesus did in my life. You, you know, you could read earlier in, this, in, in that chapter that all the guards and all the people around Paul were hearing about Jesus. Not only that, but the other prisoners that were there because they knew Jesus got really bold about their faith. They started speaking up. So Paul's life was bringing honor to God. But he's saying, man, if I die, it's going to be awesome. Here, here's the way I see it, see it played out in our lives in a practical way. Picture your life as a big circle, okay? So draw a circle around yourself. And you're sitting in the circle of your life, and you place everything in your life that's important to you, okay? So you place your family there. You place your, your job in, that, in your circle of your life. You place your hobbies. You place your friends. You place your comforts. You place whatever fulfills you. Oh, and don't forget, you place church, and you place God in your life. And you're sitting there in your circle of your life, and you're saying, I need fulfillment, so I'm going to turn to my hobbies, or I'm going to turn to my family, or I'm going to turn to, to my job. And, and you categorize everything, because I think this is how we do it. And, and, and we go about our lives dabbling in every part that's important to us in our life. Stuff that's not important, we kick out, and we add more stuff. Now, if life gets really bad, here's what we do. We spin around in our chair, and we say, hey, God... Can you come fix this mess for me? Because I need to be happy again. So come on and come fix this mess. And this is the, for me to, cry, to live is everything else in my life but Christ. But Christ is in my life, so I can go to him when I need him. And this isn't new because we've talked about these circles before. But here's, here's, how, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I have this circle of my life, and Christ is sitting in this throne center of my life. And I have my hobbies, and I have my, my, my family, and I have my job, and I have the fun things, and I have, oh, I have church, and I have what I do in service, and then there's me also, but Christ is in the center of my life. And therefore, Christ is leading and guiding and in charge of everything that is taking place in my life. And I find my fulfillment of everything in my life through Christ. So I don't believe that as Christians we go and dump everything. I just believe that, that we, Christ is in the center and everything passes through this relationship we have with him. And so when we wake up tomorrow morning and we say, for me to live is Christ, we're saying, Christ, you're getting the throne of my, of my life. You're in charge. You're in control. And I'm going to lean into you to guide me today. I'm going to lean into you for my comfort, for my support to carry me through. And that's what I think Paul is writing when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain.
So there's our challenge, to wake up tomorrow and say, today, for me to live as Christ. Will you stand up with me? Here's one of the things that I recognize in, in this message, is that there could, we could have overlooked another circle of life, and that's a circle where, where Christ is outside the life. We haven't taken that first step of, of inviting Christ, hey, come into my life. And so it'd be, it'd be a shame on my part to, to not make that an option for people. Because I don't know everybody in here, and I don't know where you're at with Jesus. I don't know if you've, if you've come to a place of saying, I need to first just recognize that I need Jesus in my life. And so we have ministry time that's going to take place right now. Um, during this last song of worship, why don't you have a conversation with God? And this isn't just for some people. This is for everybody. Have a conversation with God and, and be real and say, God, are, are, you, are you my life? Are you my life? Maybe you might have to ask, God, are you in my life? And if the answer is not 100% yes, I would challenge you to come, come down here and talk to one of the few people that are sitting up here. And they would be happy to, to introduce you to Jesus and, and, and walk you through just inviting Jesus into your life. If, if you need prayer for anything. We, we don't want you to, to walk out of here limping on something that you limped in with. So if something physical's taking place, something, something uh, emotional, there's a need in your life, come down and get prayed for. We believe God wants to intervene in our life when we, when we allow him to, okay? Hey, life groups are starting up this week. There's signups in the back. Go back there on the table. Talk to some of the people back there. And get involved in a life group because that's where you're going to find community and relationships. And then I'm going to say this. I said it last week and I'll say it again next week. Sometimes I think we can get overwhelmed with what the Christian life is supposed to be. And we stack up a lot of do's and don'ts on our lives. And then we fail because we, we're going to. We're not going to. We can't fulfill everything. And so I just want to encourage you that if, if sometimes you feel that way, the easiest thing is to just let Jesus be Jesus in your life. Let Christ be your life. And, and forget about all the other do's and don'ts. Just throw those to the side. And, th- and this would be something you could try for tomorrow. Throw all the things that you think you have to do to be a Christian to the side. And just, just walk with Jesus. And see what happens in your life. Because I don't think that the Christian life is meant to be really hard and abusive to us and, and cause us to feel ashamed of what we're doing or that we, we're failures. I believe that Christian life is supposed to be a new identity, saying that, that we're, 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 we're children of, 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 a, of a powerful living God that we sang about. So throw all the things to the side that you think you have to do to be a Christian and just engage with Christ and see what takes place, okay? So let me pray. And then we'll finish up, and then we'll also go eat. So, Jesus, we have worshipped you, and we have all in agreement saying about how you came to have relationship with us, to bring heaven to us so that we can engage with you. And God, I think in our head, we know, we know, we know that, that you need to be in the center of our lives, but in our, in our reality... We, we love to take control. So God, even right now, as, as we pray and as we, as we worship, would you be speaking to us? Would you be, be having us just be honest with ourselves and with you about where we sit with you and making adjustments in our lives to, to where we can say, today, my life is for Christ.
God, we want to bring honor to you. We want our lives to bring honor to you. We do not want to be ashamed. And so have that banner of our life be that you are everything to us. And be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.